This message by Toby Kurtz, entitled God of Promise, was recorded at Wellspring Church on February 16, 2020. The texts for this message are Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, and Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 to 9. Actually, don't really need an introduction per se, because uh, Toby's been with us for so long. But I do want to say a couple of things. First of all, um, I don't know if you realize how much of a blessing it is to have churches that we partner with together in the Bay Area for the sake of Christ. It is immeasurable, actually, if you really understand how significant it is to not be alone in the midst of ministering to a challenging place. And so to have churches in Alameda and San Francisco that have the same heart that have the same desires, same um, same foundations of wanting to preach and present and live the gospel of Christ out is significant. Secondly, personally, um, Toby is more than just a, a pastor. He's a friend of mine. And he's been there for me in both in times of plenty, but also in times of want. And I don't say that lightly. I really, really mean it. And it's... Uh, how long has Christchurch been around for? Uh, ten plus years. Yeah, so it's been ten years, and I remember when, he, you know, when they first came, when he first. And I, sorry for the long-winded introduction. I I don't usually do this, but I did want to say this because uh, it was when he was here ten, well, almost eleven years ago, and uh, they were we were sort of working together, but we were essentially getting to know one another and. Honestly, I couldn't have predicted what our relationship would be like, but Toby's truly been a, just such a great friend and a friend in ministry, and that's significant, and it's been such a blessing for me and my family. So I say that from the bottom of my heart, I mean it with all that I have, and so thank you for preaching God's Word for us today. Thank you, Sam. Well, as most of you guys know, the Christ Church was planted out of Wellspring, so we would not be here um, without you guys. And it was actually exactly 11 years ago that Sam, in order to help us get ready to plant, um, split the pulpit with me um, for a number of months. So, and it wasn't just so he could get a break; it was so <laughs> it was so um, I could get as much preaching experience as possible before going in. And in the church world, that just doesn't happen to have that kind of partnership and that kind of humility and that kind of real, I'm in this game with you kind of thing. So I'm so grateful for you, Sam, and so grateful for Wellspring. But we are going to, um, you know, you guys are in a series on First John and talking about the First John has so much about just the love of God and the, and the, the passion of the apostles that they're, everyone hearing them, everyone seeing them would, would know this love. It's not just, we want you to believe this philosophical system. Here's a different way of viewing the world. It's not that at all, right? They know Jesus. And they passionately want everyone that they know and everyone that they can possibly reach out to to also know the love of Jesus. And Christ Church this year, we are spending the first half of the year in a series we're calling The Father's Heart, where we're walking through the Bible book by book, really as almost a character study of God. What do we learn about God from each one of these stories? What, what's revealed about who God is and how he approaches humanity, how he approaches us, and with the central theme of the overarching, you know, just the, what the Bible shouts is the Father's heart. He loves us, right? For God so loved the world that, that Christ laid his life down. Like everything in the Bible from start to finish 
is about us knowing God's love. Not in a, in a wishy-washy, superficial kind of way, but in a deep transformation kind of a way. So I'm going to share a bit um, the, on the story of Abraham today, but really with that lens on what do we learn about God through this story, this foundational story of covenant, this foundational story of who God is and who we are. So please pray with me and we'll dive in here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the books of the Bible. We thank you for your heart that's revealed in these books. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to dig into Scripture, not merely as an intellectual exercise, but with a desire to know you. We thank you that even as we're looking at these words this morning, and even as I'm preaching, you are mysteriously and wonderfully working through the power of your Holy Spirit to draw us all closer to you. I pray that you'd help me to clearly and faithfully proclaim your word, And I pray that everyone in here, no matter how long they've been a Christian or even if they're still exploring what Christianity is, I pray that all of us would walk out of here with a deeper understanding of your love for us in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you guys have seen this this form of art that they have in Japan um, called kintsugi, and I have a picture of it up here. If you can throw that up, um, it is it's a it's an art of of mending with gold. That's what it literally means, and it's something that takes a really long process. But they basically take broken pottery, and rather than repairing it by trying to hide the brokenness, um, they mix in a, a lacquer dusted with powdered gold, silver, or platinum. And sometimes these pieces take up to a year to make and they, they mend them back in and beautifully do it. So the, the whole idea is some of these pieces are like, you know, hundreds of years old as pottery and they want them to show their use and their wear. If it got dropped and it broke, that's part of the story of the, of the, of the piece of art. And so they want the way they repair it to actually be re- reflected in it. So, so each part and each repair shows the history of an object. Rather than try to disguise it, they kind of highlight it because it's a part of the history of the object. And I was thinking about this, how it reflects to us and, and our relationship with God. I think oftentimes we want to hide our brokenness, hide our sin, hide what's happened in the past, rather than recognizing it's, it's, it's our sin and our brokenness and God meeting us in the midst of it, forgiving us and restoring us that makes us who we are. So in, in many ways, each one of us is like these works of art, where, where God sees us in all that we are and rejoices as a perfectly loving father over his children. And so rather than have to hide our brokenness or feel like we have to like measure up and make ourselves perfect before we come before God, we can recognize that God is making beautiful art through each and every one of our lives through the power of his love and the power of his forgiveness. And those are things we should rejoice in. See, if we look at the Bible from start to finish, God is the primary actor. It's his work we celebrate. There's some great and wonderful things that individuals do here and there. But by and large, it's God. It's God bringing beauty out of brokenness that gives us hope. That's the central message of the Bible. And we resonate and we see that how does God do this? God does this primarily through his, you know, his coming down, ultimately in the work of Christ. But from the very beginning of the Bible, God is on the scene in the midst of darkness to bring light. God is on the scene in the midst of hopelessness to bring hope. God, in this binding thing we're going to look at today, makes his promise, makes his covenant to Abraham. He doesn't say to Abraham, you do your part, you obey, you show that you're a champion, and then I'm going to come and bless you. No, he tells Abraham before Abraham's done anything at all that he's going to bless him, that he's going to keep his promise. And our our greatest hope in the world is not that if we measure up, that maybe God will come and meet us. Our greatest hope is that God has made this binding promise of grace and love to Abraham through the covenant of grace. And we are all still recipients of that binding promise and love that God has kept. 
You think about this, I think it resonates deeply within our souls because we, we all know what it means uh, to, to, to keep a promise. You know, from a very young age, uh, you don't have to train a kid to say to their parent, but you promised, right? I've actually stopped promising things to my kids because, not just because I'm a lazy father, um, because I, I want them to understand that, look, I'll tell them, I, I'm going to do my very best to accomplish this for you, but I can't promise it's going to happen, right? I'm not in control of the world and everything around us. And so I'm, I'm going to tell you that, that I, in my limited ability as your father, I'm going to work as hard as I can to make this happen for you. It also is very convenient if it doesn't happen, because then I told them I didn't promise you. Um, but I think this kind of thing, we think about it, uh, you know, from a very early age, we, we hate promises being broken and we love when promises are kept. But I also think from a very early age, if we're honest with ourselves, we come and we are confronted with our own lack of ability sometimes to keep promises. Sometimes it's because we lack the integrity. Sometimes it's just because we lack the power. We are not in control of our lives or of all the circumstances. But here's the amazing thing. We make promises with limited knowledge and limited ability to keep them. But when God makes a promise, it's with complete knowledge and complete power. Nothing can get in the way of the promises of God. So what we'll see today in the passage as we walk through it is that our greatest hope for humanity to be reconciled to God is entirely in God's hand. It doesn't rest on our ability to keep his promises. It rests on God himself, and God always keeps his promises. The main idea I want us to walk out the door with today is that God keeps his promises. And we're going to focus again on, on, on how and why God does that, but we can know that when God says, I've got you, when God says that nothing will be able to separate you from my love, he keeps that promise. When you screw up, when you sin, when you do something that you know you're not supposed to do, when you struggle with anger or pornography or whatever it is, it doesn't invalidate your relationship with God because your relationship with God is based on His promise, His love, and His power. And, and He's going to restore it and renew it and bring you back in. So first, we're going to look at God's promises. And then secondly, we're going to look at Abraham's failing and how those kind of interweave with God's promises. John Stott, in talking about Abraham's life, uh, has this quote that I think is, is I really just captures all of what it is uh, to read the story of Abraham. He says this, What God said to Abraham was not, Obey this law and I will bless you, but I will bless you, believe my promise. Think about that for a moment. If I think about the story of Abraham, uh, you know, he's the father in the faith, and we sing, you know, children's songs about him, right? Father Abraham and all these different things, and all of these things make Abraham out to be this champion of faith, this otherworldly figure that's so incredible and amazing. And sure, Abraham had that faith, but I couldn't have that faith. Depictions like that blow my mind. Because if you look at Abraham's life, it's more of a record of of horrible failings than it is great faith. It's more of a record of how is God sticking with this guy than it is, oh, that's God's champion, that's God's man. We see it in the life of Abraham is that God comes to him and doesn't say, obey me, and then I will bless you. We import that into the text when we see that in Scripture. What God says is, I'm already on the scene to bless you with my covenant, with my promises. I want you to believe in me, and I'm going to transform you. Here's what God says to Abraham. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives and your father's house, to the land I will show you, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. 
There's this promise that God's laying out there that's, that's a fivefold promise. And if you look at the story of Genesis 3 to 11, there's a fivefold curse that comes on all humanity. There's five things that happen that set humanity off on a really bad trajectory. It's Adam and Eve believing the serpent over God and God cursing the serpent. Um, it's, it's Adam himself turning away from God. Uh, it's Cain turning away from God. It's Lamech turning away from God in a profound and violent fashion. And then finally, it's Canaan. And there's this curse upon curse upon curse. And God comes in the midst of this curse, in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of all the brokenness, and says to Abraham, in the place of that fivefold curse that's on humanity, I am going to bless you fivefold times to restore and renew and make everything back on the right trajectory, to give kind of humanity this, this restart that they desperately need. And then we see throughout God reiterating his promises to Abraham. In Genesis 12, like I just read, he's going to make him a great nation and all the earth will be blessed through him. In Genesis 12, later on, he promises to, that Abraham's going to have just tons of descendants. He expands those promises in Genesis 13. Um, he tells him he's going to have countless descendants in Genesis 15. He tells him um, that he and Sarah, who are now, you guys know the story, they're very, very old, that they're going to be the father and mother of many nations in Genesis 17. And then God shares a bigger and broader plan to bless the entirety of the nation through them. That they're going to be this nation of priests in Genesis 18. Everything that God is coming to them is this old couple that's not particularly noteworthy for their, for their faith or for their power or for their numbers or for their money or for anything. God promises them over and over again He's going to restore and renew and do everything through them. But it's never, ever, ever on the basis of Abraham obeying. Now, God wants us to obey, wants Abraham to obey, because we're created as God's image bearers, right? We're created to live with God and to live for God. And so the more that we are in line with God, the more we're in relationship with God, the more we're obeying God, the more that's who we're created to be, and the more that, uh, you know, more that frees us up to be who God's called us to be. And so sin and brokenness and turning away from God, they, they act against our humanity, right? They destroy who God's made us to be. And so God corrects that and tries to draw us back in and deals very directly with sin, but it's always about drawing us back into relationship. And it's never God saying, because you disobeyed me, I'm done with you. Because from the very beginning of this covenant with Abraham, what we see is it's God promising to do it all. If you guys remember the scene when God actually cuts the covenant, we still have this deal. Uh, the, the way we talk about today is someone cutting a deal still goes all the way back to the way that these ancient covenants were done. And in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, um, they would have what they called a, a Hittite treaty structure. We won't go into all the details on that. But at the core of this structure was you and I would make a deal. And then in order to ratify this deal, we would, we would sacrifice animals. And the amount of animals we sacrificed was usually in proportion to how big of a deal it was and how big of a deal we were. If we were super powerful kings, then we'd sacrifice a lot of animals. If we were kind of more lowly people, we'd, we know sacrifice a few smaller animals. But what God does with Abraham is he borrows this treaty structure, a, a structure that would have been very, very familiar to Abraham, and, and he cuts a covenant with him. And in this covenant, what would have happened in the ancient times, and Abraham, again, would have known this structure, is God would have cut this deal like he does with Abraham, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to do all these things. And then what happens is, is the greater party, the greater king, passes through this, what they called like a, a, a really a, a pathway of blood. So you can imagine this. This is not too graphic, I don't think. But you can imagine this, like if, if you and I have cut a deal, God's cut a deal with Abraham, and then they cut the animals in half, and they would put like a half a pile of bloody animals on this side and a half a pile of bloody animals on that side. It was a gruesome kind of scene. And the middle would have been stained with blood. 
and then the greater king would have walked through first and the lesser king would have walked through second. And as they're walking through, what they're saying in essence is, may this happen to us if we don't keep this covenant. It's called a maledictory oath. You're promising death upon yourself if you don't keep your word. Now, if Abraham and God go through this together and we know the character of Abraham and we think that all of humanity's hope is dependent upon Abraham doing the right thing, it's not a whole lot of gospel there, right? Not a whole lot of good news because that deal's only as good as Abraham's ability to keep it. So what does God do? He puts Abraham to sleep and God goes through alone. What theologians call a self-maledictory of where God said he is going to keep both parts of the covenant. He's going to keep the divine part as God and he's going to keep the human part. And it would have been a mystery to Abraham. Abraham would have known sort of that God was going to bring a Messiah someday, but he would have been really wondering, how is God going to keep both parts of this covenant? We know how God keeps both parts of the covenant, right? Through Jesus. God himself becoming a human being to keep the human part of the covenant. But so we know in the end of all this stuff, and the reason I went through that whole illustration was this. The promise of your salvation being secured has absolutely nothing to do with your obedience. Your flourishing in relationship with God, your experiencing God's love, your ability to love and bless and serve others has a lot to do with your obedience because it's you getting in line with what God's called you to do, but your salvation, God adopting you into his family, has zero to do with you and 100% to do with him. That's why, as John Stott says, God can say to Abraham, not obey and I will bless you, but I will bless you, believe my promise. If you let that sink in for a minute, it's an astonishing thing. God has so secured your salvation that has absolutely nothing to do with you. And yet so often we let our relationship with God be defined by how we think we're doing in obeying Him. God is faithful and God is always building. God is correcting, but, but He's doing it for the purpose of restoration and your own flourishing in relationship with Him. And God is working with broken people because if God didn't work with broken people, He'd have no one to work with, right? Every single one of us. We have brokenness, we have sin, we have things that don't measure up. And we're so aware of those things, and God wants to wants us to know, like, He knows that, right? It's this Kinshugi thing again. God is working with your brokenness to mend it and make beautiful things happen, not because you're this great champion of faith, but because He is a loving Heavenly Father who's adopted you into His family, and you are now an unconditionally loved daughter or an unconditionally loved son. Hard stop. And nothing will ever separate you from God's love. And if you see this, God's not working with us regretfully or begrudgingly. He's doing it joyfully. God wants us to experience his love. In fact, if you look through the scriptures, um, almost without exception, the only harsh condemnations that come from God towards people are around pretense, self-righteousness, and oppression of the vulnerable. The only harsh condemnations are those that come when when we've turned our back away from God and we're rebelling and deciding to live away from Him and on our own. Even even the most like grievous acts of sin, when the person's made aware of it and they come with a repentant heart, God's not coming with condemnation. He's coming with words of restoration. Think about it. King David is described as a man after God's own heart. How many times did that guy screw up? Pretty big ways too, right? And yet he's the one described as a man after God's own heart. God is giving us a record of his unconditional love through Christ in the scriptures so that we would know him and come together with him. God is never condemning anything around brokenness, weakness, and repentance. 
God wants your heart. And so when you come to God and confess the worst of what it is that you've done or are, there's joyful forgiveness, right? It's the return of the prodigal to the, to the father. There is nothing but celebration in heaven when we repent and turn and come towards God. Anything else about obey and be blessed, anything else about maybe I'm not measuring up, so maybe God's turning away from me, is stuff we've imported into the story. It's not in the story. I love how God reassures Abraham in Genesis 15. After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. This is after Abraham's. We'll talk about Abraham's failings in a minute here. This is God coming to Abraham. I'll be your shield. I'm with you in the midst of it. See, God doesn't promise us a life that's free from struggle, that's free from brokenness, that's free from darkness, right? But what God promises is that in the midst of it, he'll be our shield. In the midst of it, he'll be with us. In the midst of it, we will walk alongside with him. The image that came to mind as I was studying these scriptures a few weeks ago was was thinking about this, you know, a, a parent and a child. And I remember, you know, as a young child, we'd go, we'd go camping. Um, and in the middle of the night sometimes, I'd have to get up and go to the bathroom, as any kid does. Um, and the thought of getting from my tent to, you know, the bathroom that was way over there in the midst of the wilderness was a terrifying thought. But as soon as I woke my dad up and my dad held my hand, I didn't give it a second thought. Right? It's, it's walking through the darkness, but my, my, my father's there. He's got me. And I know I'm going to get there. I know I'm going to be okay. I know I'm going to be defended and whatever else. Think about that. Like in the midst of the darkness, God promises to, to essentially, as a loving Heavenly Father, be carrying you, holding your hand, walking alongside you. It's the overwhelming sense I've got from you know our friend Steve Phillips as I was talking to him even last week is they don't know the way forward. They don't know what's going to happen with their daughter. They're grieving and rejoicing on a daily basis depending on what's happening. But they have this overwhelming sense that God's with them in the midst of whatever they're going through. And so because of that, they can press on and go there. Think about what we do oftentimes, though. We turn our relationship with God into our performance-based relationship. And God becomes some kind of judge or boss. And then you're fearful about whether or not you measure up. And, and so you're not sure you measure up, and so you don't pursue him as much. Or, or you get, you know, so racked with guilt and all this other stuff over there that it hinders your spiritual growth. You won't find that in here. You won't find that in the character of God. God is not some kind of judge trying to trip you up. God is a loving father trying to, trying to help you to believe his promises more deeply. So you'll come in a closer relationship with him and, and, and Jesus has laid his life down for us, has taken upon himself all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all of our rebellion, he took it. It's none of it's left. Your relationship is entirely dependent upon Jesus and the work he's done and, and the Father's unconditional love towards you. And we don't really believe it a lot of times. We think somehow our, our works are kind of wrapped up in it and so we don't, we don't do it. We had a guy a few years back that was working for us. He was our worship leader. And he was making the transition from working in a ministry job uh, to working customer service in uh, in IT security, um, where you know you're getting phone calls from clients that are freaked out because someone's hacked into their system. And so the, the the guy that hired him knew he was coming out of a ministry setting, so put him to work for a guy that used to be a pastor years back, so he kind of help him with that transition. 
And so my friend is, you know, a little bit stressed out. It's his first kind of big corporate job. And they put him on probation for the first month to see how he worked out. And a week into it, he wants to know kind of how he's going to do and, and whatever else. And so he's riding to the train station with his new boss. And he asks him, he's like, how, how can I be successful here? How can I get on and, 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 you know, make it through probation? And this guy says, Kevin, so you know that, that your relationship with God is entirely secure. That, that God loves you because of Jesus and God could never love you less than, or, or more than he does because he loves you infinite. Your identity is secure in Christ. And Kevin's like, yeah, yeah, I know. He's like, all right. So that's the world of faith. In this company, you're worth what you produce. Right? In the entire world, you're worth what you produce. In school, in corporate world, in jobs and whatever else. And so I think because we are in this kind of hardcore covenant of works environment in a day in and day out basis, we import that covenant of works. We import that performance-based relationship into our relationship with God. Where we think at the core level, at least on occasion, we're tempted to think that we are worth what we produce for God. And so that God is looking on us and evaluating us every moment of the day based on our performance. And it's just not true. God is always, I'm going to say this over and over again today, God is, is a God that keeps his promises. And God has promised to unconditionally love you through Christ. And nothing will ever change that. All right, let's see how this kind of gets highlighted even more with Abraham and his failings. These promises that God makes are amazing. If you'll put them back up there, you know, and again, we have this temptation to think, if only I could be as awesome as Abraham, God would love me that much too. But let's look at Abraham's thing here, right? So you have the great nation, all that will be blessed. Then a little bit later, you have God promises to have numerous descendants. So this incredible promise that this barren couple that has never been able to have kids in decades and decades of being married is somehow going to, going to produce a great nation. And right after God gives that promise to Abraham, he sells his wife, right? He's fearful and thinks this king's going to take her and whatever else, and he sells her. And then, and then God's expanding the promises. Promises are going again. Then back in Genesis 17, God makes an even greater promise that, that Abraham and Sarah are going to be the father and mother of many nations. God himself promising this to Abraham. And then what does Abraham do on the eve of that? He decides that God's not delivering quick enough and Sarah's in agreement with it. And so Abraham sleeps with his wife's slave so he can secure his heir and secure his future. Then, uh, even just a chapter later, God shares even greater plans with Abraham. And right on the eve of that, Abraham sells his wife again. Right on the heel of the greatest promises Abraham has, these incredible failings. And so when we think that God, and this is the other thing that blows my mind, or blew my mind when I'm reading this, as we look through all of Abraham's failings, how many times did God come to Abraham and rebuke him after he failed? How many? You guys know? You guys don't know your scriptures. It's terrible. God doesn't love you as much. How many? From Genesis 12 to Genesis 25, how many times does God rebuke Abraham and tell him how he's not measuring up and how it's, this is not going to go well with you? Zero. You'll look in vain for God coming to Abraham to rebuke him. And I'm reading the story thinking like, all right, Abraham needs at least one or two good solid rebukes, doesn't he? The only thing you have from God is an encouragement from Abraham to believe my promises. Now, there's an implicit rebuke in that and that Abraham's not fully believing his promises. That's why he's selling his wife twice and, and sleeping with a slave to secure an heir. 
So that's all sin. It's all brokenness. It's all wrong. But the focus of the story of Abraham is always on God and who he is and what he's done and what he's going to do and never on Abraham. It's always on God's faithfulness. And so God isn't rebuking him. James 2.2 says this, 2.23 rather, the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. All the language is relational. All the language is about how God has secured a relationship with Abraham and Abraham, despite all of his failings, is trusting in God relationally and God's bringing him into relationship with him and, he, and he's doing it. God loves Abraham. So God, God is always reassuring Abraham of his promises and reassuring him that he's going to draw him in a closer relationship. It's fascinating to think how often me or many of us import our own works into our calculation of how much our Heavenly Father loves us. We almost have this like ingrained need to feel guilty, broken, or wrong. And what God wants to do, again, God deals seriously with sin because sin takes us away from Him and it destroys other people and it's dangerous, right? There's a quote I love from years back where a guy said, like, you know, don't be fooled. If you jump into water, you're going to get wet. If you jump into fire, you're going to get burned. If you jump into sin, you're going to get destroyed. Rebelling against God doesn't, doesn't end well. But God, more than wanting to rebuke us, wants to assure of His, of his promises and help us be in closer relationship with Him. He knew what he was getting in this deal, right? He's not like going, oh, there you go again. No, God knows who you are. And God is working with you to restore you and renew you every single day. And there's complete and total forgiveness in Christ for everything in them. I will bless you. Believe my promise was God's core message to Abraham. And it's God's core message to us. Because here's the thing. It's either all of grace or we have no access to God, period. If any of our performance is wrapped up in it, then, then our failings would become a permanent separation between us and God because we are incapable of continually and perfectly obeying God. Everyone in here. I heard this guy when I was in college. It was atrocious. When he was uh, one of those campus ministers, you know, doing the Hellfire and Brimstone thing. I went to UC Davis, not far from here. And this guy's out there and, and, uh, and he says, do you think you could obey God for 30 seconds? How about a minute? How about an hour? How about five hours? How about eight hours? If you think you could obey God for a day, why not just obey Him forever perfectly? And I was waiting for the punchline, right? I was waiting for, no, of course you can't. But this guy was preaching some kind of ridiculous version of perfectionism. So I pulled the guy aside after in all of my 21-year-old wisdom and said, that's complete nonsense. That's garbage. You know that you have sin in your life. What are you doing defining it that way? Putting your hope and your ability to, and it was horrible. But I think so often, as much as I was like horrified by that guy's message and discouraged by that guy's message, I still import my works and my obedience into my relationship with God. And so do you. And the degree to which we do, they have no place there. Right? God is a loving father that wants to draw you in a close relationship with him. And he wants us to understand that that's who we are, right? We are those that have been graciously by God, by his grace and by his grace alone, brought into relationship with him. One more illustration on this. I think about this. Um, think about this right now. If you're a parent or if you've had parents and it's, and it's Christmas time and you're walking down the aisles of the store and you're deciding what you're going to buy for your kids. What's going through your mind as you're, as you're doing that? 
are you thinking like, how can I bless my kids and what do they really like and what would be, you know, what would help them understand like the joy that I have in them and the love I have in them? Or are you thinking, you know, the oldest has done a pretty good job of obeying. I'm going to spend a hundred dollars on that one. The middle child pain in the butt this year, $20 tops, right? And the youngest, I don't even know he's going to get a present. Is that how you are doing it, right? Now, if any parent told you they did that, you would rightly say they are an awful parent. And yet, how often do we think that that's how God treats us? We think that God's evaluating our performance and then blessing us on the basis of our performance. Now, if we can recognize it for a human parent to do that, it would be atrocious how can we not recognize it for a perfectly loving, infinitely loving God? There's no way on earth he would ever do it. Jesus gave this teaching, right? He said, how many of you, even as evil, broken earthly fathers, would ever give a stone to your kid if they asked for bread or give him a serpent if they asked for fish? How much more your heavenly father wants to bless you? Why? Because it's relational. He is your heavenly father. The heart of the father is to bless you and draw you into deeper relationship with him. The heart of the Father is so much to do that that Jesus Christ laid his life down for us and that's what's all wrapped up in here. Jesus in teaching the crowds in John 8 says this, um, speaking of God, you do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Isn't that incredible to think about for a moment that Abraham, God gave him a revelation that one day didn't have a complete and total picture of it, doubtlessly did not have a complete and total picture, but he knew that God was going to fulfill that covenant. God was going to fulfill the divine part and the human part through this messianic figure. And he, and he knew it so confidently that Jesus could say, Abraham looked forward to my day and it rejoiced because Abraham knew that God had taken the future of humanity in his own hands and would deliver humanity. And so Abraham looked forward and didn't take confidence in, oh, I've lived a pretty good life. I'm pretty sure I'm going to measure up well before the Lord. No, Abraham knew his screw-ups. He knew what he had done, and his confidence wasn't in that one day he would stand before God and vindicate himself by his faith. His confidence that he would stand before God and that God would vindicate him. Because what God would do through the Messiah, what God would do through Jesus Christ, God's purpose is fulfilled in his promise, and his promise cannot be broken. We import performance. God doesn't do that to us. Genesis 17, 1-5. When Abram was 99 years old, 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell face down, and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I will make you the father of many nations. So Abram meant like high father within kind of one house, Abraham means the father of many nations. So imagine this. For 99 years, he's been called Abram. And God changes his name to Abraham so that every time someone says his name, he'll be reminded of the promises of God. Must have taken him a while, right? Someone's like, Abraham. And he's like, oh, they're talking to me. And then it would remind him of who God is and what God promised. Same thing for Sarah. She's going to be the mother of many nations. God changed the name to remind them of the promises. Galatians 3. You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. 
Now the Scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, saying, All nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. God is connecting us, the Apostle Paul in particular, through the book of Galatians, to the promises that God made all the way back to Abraham so we can look back at the life of Abraham and know that as God said to Abraham, I will bless you, believe my promises, God now says to us, I will bless you, believe my promises. God wants to draw us into relationship with us, in Himself rather, so He can knit us together and help us understand what it means to be unconditionally loved daughters and sons. And the degree to which we embrace that, and the degree to which we understand the power of God's transformation, transforming love coming into our life, I think there's a direct correlation between that and our ability to imagine what that love could look like breaking into the lives of our friends, family, neighbors, and coworkers that don't know Jesus. So rather than think about like a proposition you have to give them where if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you for an account of your sins, what would you say to him? Right? I've shared the gospel like that a lot of times. It's worked never. Um, But what would it look like to say to somebody, here's what the transforming power of God and his love has looked like in my life. And I would love to see that love in your life. I I I would have a deep passion for you to understand How amazing God's love is. See, we do this thing where we make our relationship with God transactional and then we make evangelism transactional when all God has ever done is reinforce the relational core nature of it all. And the more that we tie into our relationship with our Heavenly Father, the more we're going to want to grab people so they can come and meet Him. It's a whole different proposition. Well, my prayer for us, my prayer for Christ Church, my prayer for Wellspring and all the churches around the Bay Area is that we would get better at proclaiming the love of God. And I do believe we're on the front end of seeing God do incredible things with with bringing people to faith. In the city right now, there's more going on spiritually than there has been in its entire history. There are are salvations happening. Um, And I think so much of it's rooted in our confidence and belief in the unstoppable, incredible love of God. And so my prayer for us is that we would understand it more deeply for our own hearts, and then that would spill over so that others would know it too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that that you are our God and we are your people. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your love more deeply so that we could live it more fully. And we pray that you would bring people to faith in you and help them understand your love in a deep and powerful way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.